and, uh, and then we'll share more. I'll share more in the message this morning too, actually. So Emma, come on, do that for us. Good morning. Um, as many of you know, we went to help Annie and Billy Sudagala teach English speaking course in Sarajevo, Bosnia. While the actual teaching of English was important, what was most important was building those relationships with our students. When you spend that much time with your students in the short seven days we were with them, you completely fall in love with them, even the students who were a little bit harder to love. Building these relationships opened many doors to sharing the gospel, and for many of the students, this was the first time that they had ever heard the gospel. This year was a little different because the team from St. Louis was actually unable to join us. This year, Andy led the song portion of the assembly time. Some of the songs were pretty silly, like I Like Banana, Coconuts and Grapes, or Lean on Me, and This Land is Your Land. But some of them were a lot more serious, with more serious topics. This year, Andy tried a new song um, with the students, which was Good, Good Father. Hearing the students sing this song completely broke my heart. The, first, the very first line of the song is, I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. Sarajevo is a mixture of religions, ranging from Muslim to Orthodox Jews to Catholics. So for these students to sing this song, it was like hearing the entire heart of the city sing. I kept thinking this week that they don't even know the God that they sing about. They don't even know how great he truly is. They know of a God, they know of a mythical God, but they do not know of the God, the true God. For many of the students to come and hear the gospel at school is completely incredible, especially in a city that has many false and work-based gospels. For them to actually make a profession of faith is even more so. They would face a type of persecution that is completely unknown to us here. Growing in my faith, I have been taught to risk everything for the glory of Christ, which prompts the question, how many of us have ever actually been asked to risk it all? This is what these students go through when they make the decision to follow Christ there. Many lose families or jobs, and they can even lose their homes all for the sake of Christ. Um, I have shared this verse many times before and in many different settings. It is my favorite verse, and it is my own personal mission um, statement. But Philippians 3, 7 through 12 describes the weightiness, the caution, and the mindset we should have when we choose to profess Christ to the ends of the earth. It says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I now consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection, and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this, or that I have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. Thank you, Emma. 
I apologize this morning. We had a lot of pictures we are going to show uh, during the message this morning uh, from our trip, but we'll, we'll share those in a couple of weeks. Our projectors are not working this morning, as you've noticed. Um, but one of the pictures I was going to show was of Emma. She came up here uh, teaching one of the classes. Not only did we teach Bosnian students at the church, at the Baptist church, uh, twice each day, but in the afternoons we also got the opportunity to teach some uh, refugees that were coming from Syria and Argentina and Iran. And uh, I've got one picture of uh, Emma. She had, she wasn't expecting to do this. She got there and ended up there were ten young children that showed up, and uh, she had all ten of them by herself teaching in her room. And she did a, she just stepped right up and did a great job with them. And everybody on our team did a great job, and I'm thankful for them. So thank you for supporting us and praying for us and giving and and going with us in that way. I want to ask you to take your Bible this morning and turn to First Timothy. 1 Timothy in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one underneath a chair you're sitting in or close to you. And I ask you to stand with me as we honor God's Word, something many people in the world don't even know exists or have access to. So let's take it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm going to uh, begin reading anyway at verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'll begin reading at verse 12. Verse 12 says this, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Verse 17. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank You for Your Word again this morning. I ask God that as we continue to worship as we have in Sunday school this morning, as we've observed baptisms, as we've prayed together and sang Your Word together, Lord, that we might continue to worship as Your Word is preached and that the end result of that might be verse 17, that we might break forth in doxology, that we might be overcome with the fact that You have been so gracious to us that You are the immortal, invisible, the only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, do this work in our hearts because our hearts easily grow dull from the allurements of the world. And Father, there are some hearts that have yet to have been changed by Jesus that are in this room that hear this message, yet to be born again. God, we pray that You'd grant that grace as well. Do this for Your glory. In your name's sake, in yours alone, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As we were in Bosnia, as we do each year, the last three years we've been, as they've done the school, there's usually a gift bag that sits at the feet of the one that speaks. And so this year I had the opportunity and the privilege of being the one that spoke each day in the, in the assemblies that we had for the students as they came to the English school. The question that we chose this year was this. Who is the most honorable person you know and why? Who is the most honorable person you know and why? 
The reason we chose that question is because in the, that particular culture, in the Muslim culture in particular, they often think in terms of honor and shame. And so we wanted to pose that question about the most honorable person you know. Now, the aim of the English school is to teach English. Uh, we want to present ourselves in a professional way and so forth, and we do that while we're there. But we're listening and we're looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus in the class time, in the assembly time, and during the times, during breaks as well. We got to share the gospel in the assembly times. The students that came to the school this year got to hear the gospel, I can assure you, and not just in the assembly times, but some of them one-on-one as well. And we praise God and attribute that to prayer as well. Some who have never heard have now heard the gospel because you gave and you, you go with us. But the aim of the PSC is not to teach English. It's just what I just said. It's verse 5. Look at your Bible in verse 5. What's it say? You're looking at your Bible? The aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, this is not the Oprah Winfrey kind of love. All right? This is a love for Jesus Christ. Just read all of 1 Timothy. You'll see it clearly. A sincere faith is talking about faith in Jesus. The aim of Paul's charge to young Timothy, who's a pastor in a city called Ephesus, the aim of this, the aim of their charge collectively together and corporately together is so that those who don't know God might know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. They might have a love for the true and living God and a love for man as God intended. And it only comes to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So in order for these students that come to Bosnia or whoever it is that we might meet, it's important that they see that they are not honorable, that they are sinners, just like you must see that as well, just like those in Cordoba and Argentina must see that as well, that they must see that they are not honorable, they are sinners, that they have shame. They must see this. They must see that Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Saves. Jesus saves. We don't save ourselves. It's not by our works. And every religion in the world, and you've heard this many times, other than Christianity, ultimately teaches a works-based salvation. That as long as you're good enough, as long as you try hard enough, then when you stand in front of God or whatever you call this being in the universe that you worship, which is, which is nothing but an idol, unless it's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you are dependent upon your works and you will stand condemned one day is what the gospel teaches us. The problem in Ephesus was this. Look at your Bible in verse 3. Look at your Bible in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. This is Paul talking to a young man named Timothy. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he's supposed to stay there. Paul's, Paul's helped start a church in this place called Ephesus, this city. You can read about it in the book of Acts. So Paul says, Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus, and I want you to instruct certain people in the church there that are believers not to teach a different gospel. Because as he says in Galatians, a different gospel is no gospel at all. It'll send you to hell. So you, you instruct them to teach the truth, to teach the gospel. Then he says in verse 7, he says this, Look at your Bible in verse 7. Desiring, he says about these teachers in the church, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here you have 
men of God, supposed men of God in the church, identified by the church there in Ephesus, who are teaching things that are not right. Some of it is complete heresy. Some of it may be intentional and some of it may not be. And they're teaching a a works-based gospel, which is not a gospel at all. Brandon and Crystal have spent a year and a half in Argentina and will go back in a few weeks to remain there. That's where they live now. And one of their desires, if I have this right, is to train pastors there to teach and preach the gospel accurately. Because many of the pastors in the churches there, there are churches there, but many of the pastors have no theological training. And a lot of the things they teach you would be surprised to hear because they've not had the training that they should have. Not that you have to have training, but it helps. And so that's why they're there, so that these men won't teach things that are contrary to the Word of God, just as I should be held accountable to that as well. So one of the things I want you to notice before we dive right into the text is this. The law, remember, these teachers were were teaching this, basically, that the way to heaven is to believe in Jesus and keep the law. They were teaching okay about Jesus, perhaps, but they were teaching ultimately that what gets you to heaven is yourself. And folks, that's what the Catholic Church teaches. That's what many, uh, that's what the Muslims teach. That's what all the major religions of the world teach. It's Jesus plus something else. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus saves. He alone. It's Jesus plus nothing else. If it's anything else, it's a false gospel. It's false teaching. Jesus saves. And so, the law, though, is good. Notice what it says in verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good. We know that it's good. So don't just think Jesus is coming along and saying, we don't have to be concerned about the law anymore, about morality, about living a good life. After all, we're saved by grace. We're going to heaven by grace. We can live any way we want to. God forbid, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, that we should think that we have a license to sin because we're saved by grace. The law is good. If, notice what the rest of it says, if one uses it lawfully. So in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through, and I appreciate Tim Johnson and Matt Fowler preaching for me in my absence, continuing that series of messages through the Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through. And as we've been noticing in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, don't think I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So don't think for a moment Jesus came along to say, to relax any standards. Jesus came along to say, look, you think you're all right with God because you're trying, to, you're trying to be good on the outside, but it goes to the inside. And this is how you're supposed to live your life, not just outwardly. You're supposed to have these desires on the inside as well. Not just to impress men, but you're supposed to really... You do these things because you're motivated out of love for God. And so the law is good. Jesus is not correcting the law. He's given a true interpretation of it and showing how He fulfills it. The law is good, but notice again what verse 8 says. If one uses it lawfully. And then he gives a list of certain types of sins as I continue to read in verse 9. Understanding this, verse 9, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, the glory, the blesses God with which I have been entrusted. So the law must be used lawfully. So what exactly does that mean? We've been going through some evangelistic training for several weeks on Sunday nights called The Way of the Master. So we were in Bosnia uh, when I had the opportunity to share in the assembly times um, 
You know, you're dealing with about 90% Muslim in the assembly times. And so there's, you don't want to just hit them too hard, too fast with everything at once. But work your way up to some things. But eventually I began to use that very outline that we've been learning and as a church family using the law to help them understand they've sinned against God. Because you see, whether you're a Muslim or whether you're a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or whatever false cult or, or a religion you might be a part of, everybody has the law of God written on their hearts is what Romans says. Amen? Everybody knows that you shouldn't go out here and kill somebody. And you don't have to read that in the Bible to know it. You just know it because you're creating the image of God. Now, there's some nutcases out here that might say otherwise, but that's the case. If something's wrong in the head, but something's wrong in everybody's heart, right? Everybody has an understanding that there is right and wrong in the world. And that right there, folks, is, is a moral evidence for the existence of God. That we ought to seek Him out and say, okay, if there's a standard of the world, I'm creating, you know, dogs and animals, they just do what they want to do. But I'm not an animal. I know I shouldn't do certain things. Why is that? Why do, why do I have a certain moral standard, a moral compass? It's because you're creating the image of God. So seek this God and know who this God is and find out He's, in, he's revealed Himself in Jesus. You stand condemned before Him. So the law must be used lawfully. So what we said to the students, what I said in the assembly times, and some of us shared individually as well later on. So do you think you're a good person? So I said in one of the assembly times, I said, uh, so you think you're a good person? And so we went through some of the commandments, just as you all have heard recently. Sometimes on Sunday mornings I've mentioned this. You know, What would you call somebody that stole something? Would you call them a thief? If any of you saw stolen anything? Suppose a person lied. Well, they lied one time. What would that make them? A liar. Suppose someone looked upon a woman to lust. Jesus said that's the same as committing adultery. What would you call them? An adulterer. Have you ever used God's name as a curse word? What we call it? We call that blasphemy. The Bible says not to use God's name that way. His name is to be holy. So we call that person a blasphemer. But just so taking four of the commandments, you're admitting you're a lying, blasphemer, adulterous, thief at heart. All these things we could go on and on. And when you stand in front of God one day, would you be innocent or guilty based on that standard? And the answer should be, I would be guilty. I shared this with one of the students from last year. I met with for two and a half hours this past week. His name is Lubashaw. He didn't come to the school this week, but one of the good things about continuing to go to the same place like we're doing is we get to meet some of the same students. And we get to build relationships with them. So even though he didn't come to the school, I messaged him on Facebook. Facebook's good for something. Not much, for something. And I messaged him and said, I'd like to meet with you and talk with you. Just get caught up. So he said, okay. And Lubashaw was about 30 years old. We met down at the mall and we began to talk. He wanted to talk about American politics and what in the world's going on over here. <laughs> For about two and a half hours, we talked and talked and talked and talked. He's a political science major, a very intelligent guy. So as we talked, finally I got to the end. Last year when we had talked to him, Nick had hunted him down and brought him to me and said, hey, you need to talk to this guy about Jesus. You know, Nick was kind of my hound dog. Manita Turner took that, that role this year, hunting people down and bringing them, you know, so last year when I talked to Lubashaw and we were there, I shared the gospel with him and I pleaded with him. You know, he, he's not Muslim. He's actually Orthodox, claims to be an Orthodox Christian, but he's far from it. So Lubashaw, you read your Bible? No, I don't read my Bible. You pray? I don't, I don't go to church. So Lubashaw, this is the God that made you. Shouldn't you be concerned about it? So we gave him a Bible. And I said, well, you read this. And he told me last year, he said, I'll read, I'll read it. So after we talked for two and a half hours about politics last week, I said, now, Lubashaw, let me enjoy talking with you. Let me, uh, let me just ask you something. Did you read that Bible? 
he, he kind of looked at me funny and I said, be honest. He said, I didn't get past Cain and Abel. <laughs> and you know, I just busted out laughing. <laughs> Not because it was funny, and I told him that, but we were just having, we were friends. We're having, we're having a good time sitting talking together. And I said, Lubisha. He said, well, he said, I got this stack. I like to read and I got this stack of books staring at me on my desk. And, and, uh, and I, I know what I need to read him. I said, but Lubisha, this is the most important book ever written. And you claim to believe it. Don't you think you should spend some time reading it? And then I went through that gospel outline using the commandments with him. I said, I want to share this with you again, Lubashaw. And I shared with him again the gospel, just like I shared with you just now. And he said to me, I said, does that concern you? Would you be innocent or guilty? He said, based on that logic, I would be guilty. I said, does that concern you? He said, be honest with you, no, it doesn't concern me. I said, why is that? Is that because you just feel like God's going to be merciful and forgive? And that's basically what it was. God's just going to be merciful even though He's broken God's commandments and God's just going to forgive Him anyway. And I said, Lubashah, Adam and Eve took... You, you got that far in Genesis. Why did they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden? They took one bite of forbidden fruit. They took a bite of a fruit, Lubashah, and they got kicked out. And God said, I don't want you around here. You think God's going to... Look at, look at your sin. Look at what you just admitted yourself. How do you think God's going to deal with you? So he couldn't respond to that. The law must be used lawfully to help us understand how we are to live our life as believers and also to help unbelievers understand the gospel. And we're entrusted with the gospel. If you look in verse 11... It says, in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul says, I've been trusted with this gospel. And later he says in verse 18 to Timothy, this charge I entrust to you. You see, it's passed on down. This gospel that Jesus saves has been passed on to us as well. And we are to responsibly proclaim this gospel. There's many problems in Ephesus as there were problems in Argentina. There's problems in Bosnia, in the church that's there. There's problems in the church in America. The Christian foundation on which we've been built, I would agree with that much to say we're a Christian nation, I would not agree with. But the foundation on which we've been built, I agree with, is continually eroding because of the onslaught of moral relativism, religious pluralism, all these different things, uh, philosophies that are out there. And the temptation for you when you're sitting in your college class or in your high school class or at work is to want everybody to like you. You want everybody to like you and you just want to kind of swim with them down upstream. You know, you just don't want to stand out. The temptation is to not say anything that would cause any waves and just let them people go along with you and go straight to hell. When believers retreat from the truth of the gospel that Jesus alone saves, the gospel is compromised. And when the gospel is compromised in that way by our cowardness, as was the temptation for Timothy here in context, then lost people stay lost because they don't hear the true gospel. All they hear is that you're a nice person, you're their friend, and you pretty much agree with everything they say. So in case we're tempted to swerve from our convictions, let us remember this primary truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? That's what Paul says here in these verses. Christ Jesus 
came into this world. That means He used to not be in this world. That means there was a time before the world was created. He's talking about His pre-existence. Christ Jesus came into this world to not just be a good example of how to live a good life, or how to be a, how to how to live sacrificially he came into this world to save sinners he did not come into the world to make it possible for sinners to be saved he came into this world to save sinners jesus saves now if that is the hope the aim that is that is the only hope that mankind has that your friend has that you play basketball with or whatever whoever it is that you know then this is the gospel that must be shared So let me share three things quickly. Number one, you, keep this in mind, if you're not to swerve, if you're not to give in to temptation, if you are to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel and not cave in, keep these things in mind, these glorious truths. Number one, you, if you're a believer, some of you are not believers, so let's just stop for just a second. There are men and women here in this room or listening to this sermon who are not born again. And Jesus says you must be. Don't assume because you're in church that Christ is in you. You must be born again. So we plead with you and we pray for you this morning. Repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ today. But for those of you who are believers, understand this. Number one, you are the object of God's overflowing grace. I'm saying it this way because this is to motivate us not to swerve from the truth, but to proclaim boldly the truth of the gospel. You are the object, object. You've not earned this, you've not merited it. You are the object of God's overflowing grace. Look at verse 12. Look at what Paul does as he's writing to young Timothy. He says, I thank Him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Look at verse 13. You looking at your Bible? Though formerly I was a blasphemer. That means he took God's name in vain. He hated Jesus. Persecutor and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was what you would call a hater. He hated Jesus. He hated Gentiles. He hated the gospel. So much that he arrested Christians and was pleased when Christians died and watched them die. It made him happy. It made his day to see a Christian stoned to death. He hated to hear the name of Jesus. He was proud of all his good works and all the things he had done under the law. He did not use the law lawfully. Ultimately, he was a hater of God. Because he did not understand that he needed God's grace and could not save himself. And Paul talks about his testimony here, and he does several other places in the New Testament. He couldn't get over how God had saved him. God forbid that we should ever get over how God has saved us. Amen? The aim of the gospel in verse 5 was to make Paul not a hater, but what? What's verse 5 say? A lover. The aim of our charge is love from a pure heart. Right? 
What we're, what Paul's doing here is this. He's writing to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, don't be timid. Don't be a coward. Don't swerve for the truth. You instruct these teachers and you preach this gospel because this gospel can take haters like me and make them lovers of Jesus. Take haters of Jesus and make them lovers of Jesus. So to encourage Timothy and remind Timothy of the power of the gospel, he says, Timothy, remember what the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus saves this truth. Remember what it's done for me. I'm an object of God's overflowing grace. And you need to remember that as well. If you're a believer this morning, if you are, you are an object of God's overflowing grace. That means He, he, he called you out and said, I'm going to give Him grace. Only the gospel of grace of God can do that, can make a hater a lover, can make a hater of Jesus a lover of Jesus. God's done that in many of your hearts. I've heard many of your testimonies and I've seen the grace and evidence and fruit of it in your life. It's only this gospel that can do that. So we met a student named Iden who hung out with us quite a bit. Iden is 20 years old and goes to the mosque and prays five, five times a day, we found out. I talked with him quite a bit. and In fact, everybody on our team got to talk to Iden a little bit. And he hung out with us one day about six or seven hours. And we had some free time the last day we were there and enjoyed talking with him. But he had many difficult questions to ask. does not believe in the Trinity and, and so forth. And I said, man, the Trinity is hard for Christians to understand. It's hard to understand and wrap our minds around. But it's an infinite God. Are we supposed to understand him? And of course, he's not come to Christ. But then I met that Sunday morning with Emir. And Emir, you might remember, is the young man, about 24 years old, that Ryan met last summer at the school. And then later in November, he had contacted us, telling us he, 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 he believed Jesus is the way, truth, and the life. And he wanted to follow Jesus. So I wanted to meet with Emir and talk with him and encourage him. And Emir told me that he lives about 50 meters from a mosque, and his, his father had died a few years ago from cancer, so he's very close to his uncles. And all of his uncles that he's close to goes to the mosque and prays five times a day. And now they're asking him, why don't you go to the mosque and pray? I said, well, tell him it's too far of a walk. <laughs> you know? Emir, a lot of times, can't make it to church because there's only one Baptist church in the whole city. Not that you have to just go to a Baptist church, but the, there's really only one that I'm aware of that's preaching the gospel. In a city of 300,000 it takes him so long to get there from where he lives. Don't take church attendance for granted, church family. I have at times. Don't do it. So he says he's told his friends, and his friends, they're fine with it, but he's not told his mom and his family yet. Pray for him here. But the reason I contrast Aiden and Aiden is this. Aiden's heard the same gospel as Emir has. And Emir's been saved. Emir is an object of the grace of God. He said, look... He told me, he said, Steve, I, I'm still believing. Amen? I'm still, I'm, I'm not changed my mind. He, he wanted to assure me that he's still following Jesus. Amen, church? Amen. So, he's an object of God's overflowing grace. Notice how Paul says it in verse 14. Look at your Bible. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So just like this, this cup that's been filled up to the brim, and you, you would think that's the limit. You know, your kids pour milk sometimes in the cup, and you want them, stop! You're going to overflow! And, and it overflows because there's a, a perceived limit there, but not for them. They just keep pouring and it goes everywhere. Well, God's, God's grace has overflowed. 
you would think there'd be a limit to it. You see, all of us, whether we're saved or not, have received grace. Because God gave us life, and God created us, and He gave us breath, and every single thing we've got that's good is from God. The fact that you're hearing the gospel this morning, again, even if you're not saved, is grace. But God's grace goes beyond that for many and overflows and they become the object of His overflowing grace. And like Emir and like many of you and myself, we are saved. So, you need some motivation to not swerve from the gospel and to proclaim the truth? Then remember, you once were lost, but now you're found. And God saved a wretch like you. You are an object of God's overflowing grace. Number two, You are an example of God's patience to save sinners who believe. If you're a believer, you are an example of God's patience to save sinners who believe. Now, if you're married here this morning and your spouse is a believer, look over at them and tell them, you're an example of God's patience. (laughs) You're an example of God's patience to save sinners who believe. Now, isn't that what Paul says here in verse 15 through 16? And remember, I asked the students at the, at the PSE school, the Practically Speaking English school, I said, who's the most honorable person you know? Every single day, every assembly, I asked them that. Then one of the days during the week, I said, let me ask you a different question this morning. Who's the most dishonorable person you know? And I said, I'm going to tell you who the most dishonorable person is that I know. And I was going through a translator. I said, it's me. And all of a sudden, many of them said, why? Why? It was almost comical, but they they weren't expecting that. And again, there's this culture in which to be a sinner is a little bit different a concept, but it's also embedded in our hearts by virtue of being created in the image of God. And so, wow, what have you done? And I said, well, I've I've lied. I've I've had hatred in my heart, and God says it's the same murder. I said, I've not killed anybody, so rest assured, don't be afraid. But I have in my heart with anger before. Paul said this about himself in verse 14. 15. Look at verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners whom I am the foremost. You see that? Some of your translations say, I am chief. Number one. I'm the number one sinner I know. The worst. He says it again in verse 16. Look at verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul says, if I want to give you... Timothy, if you need an example of how God would take someone and change their life, look at me. And folks, we ought to think about that ourselves. As we mature in Christ, we should not see ourselves in a better light. Really, we should see progress and sanctification. But there should also be more of a sensitivity to our own sins. It's called humility. Read J.C. Ryle's book, Humility, and you'll understand more what I'm talking about. I met a man named Almir while I was there who has two young boys, and we talked one day. Almir is a committed Muslim man as well, and, and uh, but him and I had some in common, being the same season of life with young families. And he talked to me one day, and, about where he was at and Islam a little bit. And he came up to me one of the last days of class while they were singing one of the songs. I think it was Good, Good Father, Emma. And he looked over at me and they were singing and he just left his seat and, and just walked over to me. 
Well, everybody was singing, and he shook my hand. He said, I want you to know it's something like, I want you to know it's good that somebody from the opposite side of the world, blah, 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 and we can have similarities and talk and all that kind of stuff. And I said, well, I had to be careful how I reciprocated that. I'm reminded I'm in the same season of life as this man, Almir, that I like. I like him. He's brought us two little boys to the graduation, just cute little boys. I'll show you a picture in a couple of weeks. But I'm no different than Almir. I don't, I'm more sinful than him as far as I know. But God has saved me. And all I know is God can do the same thing for him. And I believe that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy as he preaches and he labors in Ephesus. Timothy, God saved me, the, the chief persecutor of the church, and made me the chief missionary of the church. He did that through the, the fact that Jesus saves. So keep on preaching Jesus saves. He can do that for your family members and your friends, folks. You keep being faithful to the gospel. To display His perfect patience as an example. Scripture says, The Lord is not about as slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And notice in your Bible, in verse 16, look at your Bible in verse 16 again. Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. He displays His perfect patience to save sinners who believe. He just doesn't come in and save everybody. You must believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 Many of you know it. Most people in the world never heard it. But God can save whoever believes. I like the old song I learned a while back talking about the depths of the gospel for a man that was an alcoholic. It goes like this. I remember the night at the end of my road in a hotel in Nashville searching for hope. In my hand was a Bible I read as a child. On a table was a bottle that was driving me wild. Well, I poured the whiskey into the glass. Prayed it would help me forget about my past. Then I read of how Jesus died on that tree. I poured out the whiskey, got down on my knees. That night, old Jack Daniels met John 3.16. God's Word broke a hold that it had hold of me. I traded Tennessee whiskey for Calvary's tree. That night, old Jack Daniels met John 3.16. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of this gospel can change anybody's heart, whether they've been an alcoholic or never, that never even touched a drop of liquor in their life. No matter who you are or what you've done, He can save you. And that's what Paul is saying. So, Timothy, keep on preaching the truth. Keep on preaching the gospel. Last thing I'll share with you quickly is this. The word doxology, it means to praise means praise or glory with words. Doxus means praise or glory. The ology part, logos, means words. It means to, to express glory with words. And that's what we have here in verse 17. 
As Paul thinks of this gospel that has saved him, that's overflowed to him, and how God has used that as an example to save anyone else who would believe, he's overpowered and caught up in wonder and awe to the praise of God's matchless glory. So point number three is this. When you think of God's patience towards you and how He's saved you, you will be overpowered in wonder to the praise of God's matchless glory. So that's what verse 17 is. He's thinking about His testimony. He's thinking of God's overflowing grace to Him. So verse 17, He just kind of cuts it off. And He just says, I just got to praise God now. I just got to overflow. I can't contain it. When I think about how God has saved me, how can I be quiet about it? So He says in verse 17, To the King... To the king of the ages, immortal. That means he'll never die. He lives forever. Invisible. He's not got a body. He's a spirit. He's God. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. I just want Him to be glorified. Him alone. Because He alone, by His grace alone, through Jesus alone, has saved me. So let Him receive glory forever. A young man we met named Admir is a believer. Was saved through a different ministry, going to the church in Bosnia right now, and communicated to me he's been saved about eleven months. He's struggling big time. He's coming to the church, but he's struggling. Same struggles any man would have. He's struggling. He don't have any Christian friends. I tried to get him connected with Emir that I mentioned a while ago. He's the only young man in the church. He told me during the war and when the Bosnians and Serbs were fighting that. A grenade fell in front of him when he was five years old and it killed some other little kids that were with him the same age as him. He couldn't talk for several years after that. He didn't speak a word, he said. Many of the people we met in Bosnia uh, are suffering from that kind of uh, PTSD. But of course he can talk now and not only can he talk, but he talks about Jesus now. Because 11 months ago somebody from a different ministry had shared the truth with him and he communicated several times the kind of awe and wonder when I talked to him during the week that Paul communicates here in verse 17. He just said, I'm just, God's changed my life. My life is different. He doesn't have any Christian friends. He talks about, of course, he doesn't, he doesn't know anybody except the few people that go to the church and most of them are many years older than he is. But he communicated his wonder and awe that Jesus had changed his life. And it was a blessing to hear that. One church reformer said this about Paul's statement here in verse 17. The sudden outburst of Paul comes mainly when the vastness of the subject overpowers him and makes him break off what he is saying. For what could be more wonderful than Paul's conversion? No wonder, verse 17, he just says, i got to stop for a minute and praise God. What could be more wonderful than his conversion and the God who caused it to happen? The same person goes on to comment, We should never think of God's calling without being lost in wondering admiration. How great a deep is the glory of God. Beloved, what could be more wonderful than our own conversion than how God has saved you? Would you be saved without God's grace? Would you have figured it out? Would you have come up with a solution? Oh, yes. I can look up at the sky and see that Jesus must come and die on the cross for my sins. You don't get it that way. 
General revelation is not enough. You've got to have somebody come and talk to you. A parent or a friend talk to you about Jesus. That's grace. You weren't born in Bosnia. You were born in America where people can freely talk about Jesus. Less so they're doing. And, and yes, and freedoms are being infringed on all the time. But that's grace itself. But even more grace that you actually believed what you were told and heard. Amen? Don't ever get over it. And let that wonder and awe cause you and me to want to spread it to other people. I think we're planning to sing this song this morning called Reckless Love. We've agreed in talking, but we don't really like that title very much. Reckless makes me think irresponsible. And God's love is very purposeful. That God aims to glorify Himself and the joy of His people. And so... When I sing this song this morning, I'm going to say matchless love. It's a great song other than the word reckless. His love is matchless. There's nothing like His love. There's nothing like this glory that has saved us. Part of the song says, When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. Amen. You paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. So as we sing this morning, let us praise this God. Let us break off into ec- absolute exultation over the, how this gospel has saved us. And as we do that, let us be remind, reminded of this. As we praise God together this morning before we leave for this gospel, this Jesus who has saved us, let us be reminded that what we sing in the four walls of this room must not stay here. Amen, church? Jesus said to go tell it in the highways and byways, whether that be in Argentina or Bosnia or right here in Mount Carmel or wherever you live. People need to know that Jesus saves. Let me say one last thing. And I mean this. You don't have to go to Bosnia to talk to people that's never heard the gospel. There's people right over here at Mount Carmel High School and junior high school that heard about Jesus and have much more access to the gospel. I hope you understand that. All right? But there's old tons of people right here where we live who've never really heard the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ alone saves. And all they must do is admit that they've sinned and trust alone in Him. What many people, probably most people here around here, is it's Jesus plus something else. And that is not good news. If it's up to me to save myself, I'm on my way to hell. But if Jesus alone saves and by His grace I'm trusting in Him, then praise God, I can swing over hell on a rotten cornstalk. Amen? Because I'm trusting alone in Jesus for my salvation. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the power of the Gospel. I pray, Father, we'd be faithful to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing together. If you'd like to come and pray this morning, you're welcome to do so. Or I can talk with you about how God may be at work in your heart. You come and we will praise our God together this morning. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. 
God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.